0: when you think about blood, is the sacrificial system. Right? Ancient Jewish people would would take animals and they would sacrifice them and they would do certain rituals with the blood. And it was so powerful, and it was so important. And to them, it was a bit unnerving, just as it would be to us. If we think about, um, to our modern sentiments, how uncomfortable it would be to think of a day like Yom Kippur, where they would have, in temple time, they would have sacrificed hundreds, if not thousands of animals. Historians tell us, Josephus is one, he tells us that on on the day of Yom Kippur, that that blood would run down from the temple mount in the gutters, that there would be so much blood running down. From the temple. And something just feels like that doesn't feel right because Leviticus tells us, right? Leviticus tells us what we know in, in, intrinsically. Leviticus, 10, Leviticus 17, verse 10, God says this. He's, he's telling them how to practice, how to be the people of God, how to worship rightly. And, and he says this He says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats. Blood, and I will cut them off from the people. This is, this is really aggressive, right? This is a moment of God where he's being very stern. In the Hebrew, he's got that tone, right? That tone that your parents get, right? He's got that tone. Like we're not messing around right now, right? It says this, for the life of a creature is in the blood. For the life of The creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement, to cover over. That's what atonement is talking about, to cover over for yourselves on the altar. There's something powerful, especially in ancient Jewish thought about blood. It was what life was. They had a very different understanding of the human body right? They, they, didn't, they didn't understand nearly the way things worked and brain and chemistry and hormones and all those types of things, but they knew this. They knew this. If blood ain't in the body, there's no life in the body, right? Here's an example. For them, um, in, in our world, and our language, we, we talk about the seed of the emotions, right? You know what the seed of the emotions, in, in our Western culture, the seed of the emotions is our heart, Right? Um, In ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, the seat of the emotion was the bowels. It was the gut, right? Because they didn't know what was going on down there, but here's what they knew. They knew when they got nervous that it hurt down here. That when they got sad, when they got angry, that it hurt down here, right? They didn't know the large intestines and the small intestines and the appendix and all these things that are going on there. They just knew, I feel it down here, right? And so for them, for them, God uses this really powerful image that blood is life. And then if you don't have blood, you have death. In fact, in fact, this image begins in the garden. It begins in Genesis 3. There's a plot. You know the story in the garden? Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, there's a serpent there, and, and God shows up and he says, What have you done? And Adam says, She told me to do it. And she says, He told me to do it, right? And and God begins to unravel to them the reality of the brokenness that they've brought into creation, that they've brought death into creation and that the death and rebellion, because here's, here's the really simple math equation. Okay. Here's what we believe. Here's what scripture teaches. Okay. That God breathes life into us, that God is the one who gives life. And so, and so what happens in the garden, right? What happens in the garden is when they choose to remove themselves from the one who gives life, who gives breath into their lungs, there's only death. Right? It's like if you're scuba diving, and you're like, you know, these oxygen tanks are really cumbersome. I think I'm just going to take them off. You know what you're going to do? You're going to die. Right? And that's the image we get in Genesis, is that they separate themselves from God. And so this death thing, this death thing begins to consume all of who they are. And it is in their rebellion, in their choice of death, in their separating from life, that to sustain them, death comes about. Look at Genesis 3.21. Maybe you haven't noticed the implication of this before. It says this, um, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothe them. Now, God could have. God could have said, you know what? I just decided you guys rebelled and sinned, and now you realize you're naked, and this is awkward, and so here's a banana republic. Why don't you go pick out your right size? Right? He could have, but he, he didn't. Because our rebellion, our sin, our brokenness, Scripture says... That the death we've brought into creation, Paul writes, he he says that all of creation groans because this death, this disease has consumed all of who we are. And, And the thing in us that was supposed to be life has become tainted and toxic and causing death in us. And so God, 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 God tells the people this way that they are going to continue to find life. And, and the way he tells them is through the sacrificial system, right? More blood. They, they take the lifeblood of a creature and they give the lifeblood. You remember, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant. Ark um, is just a fancy Bible word for box, okay? And the covenant is just the language that we use about how we have relationships with one another, right? So um, it's the box of the relationship, And if you remember, the box of the relationship, the Ark of the Covenant, didn't actually have a lid on it. It They put inside the box of the the relationship, the, the Ark of the Covenant, they put inside all of these reminders of the kind of God that they were worshiping, and then there was a separate thing that sat on top of it. It was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat sat over their relationship, and every single year, the high priest would go in, do you remember this? He would go in, and he would take the lifeblood of an animal... And he would sprinkle it on top so that the blood of life would cover over their brokenness. In fact, um, ancient Jewish people didn't actually think that the sacrifices uh, removed their sin. You know that? I think we have this misconception that we think that, like, they would sacrifice an animal and then their sins would be gone. In fact, they knew that it didn't happen that way. On Yom Kippur, have you ever heard of, I'm sure you've used the phrase, you call someone a scapegoat or you say something to the scapegoat or something like that. That's a, that's a Jewish term. On Yom Kippur, they would sacrifice animals. On Passover, they would sacrifice animals and they would, they would um, spread the blood and they would, they would eat the meat and they would burn up stuff and they would burn the incense and all these types of things to cover over... For a season, they would take the life of another to cover over the death that they didn't engage in. Yom Kippur, they would take a goat and the high priest would put his hands on the goat, on his head, and on the goat, he would confess the sins of the people. Right, that's as much description we get. I I imagine he was vague and like it was Reader's Digest version, right, because there's a lot of them. He wasn't like, Timmy, it's your turn. Tell us what I need to say, Right. But he would confess the sins of the people onto the goat. And in some spiritual way, the sins of the people would be placed on the goat. And then their sins would go away. They wouldn't be cleansed. They'd be transferred onto this life. And that this thing that had life would consume their death. And it would walk away. Now, um, there's some theories that uh, they they would... They would push the goat out of the city and they'd want it to wander away, but they, they realized they got a little nervous. There's a problem if the goat carrying all the people's sins walks out of the city and then turns around and walks back in the city. Like that's bad luck if all of the sins of all the people come walking down Main Street, right? So um, they would actually begin to go out and they go out to the edge of the town and they would push the goat off a hill just to make sure it'd never come back, right? Off a cliff. Because even they knew. That the, the sacrifice, the lifeblood of an animal wasn't sufficient to cleanse. All it did was cover over. It's like um, when we, we, we just finished or getting close to finishing this renovation on our, on our live stream control room stuff, you probably saw as you walked in. And, and when we were initially drawing up where things were going to be in outlets and stuff like that, we took um, big old fatty, the biggest fat red permanent marker we could find. And we wanted to be clear. We're like, we're gonna put a power outlet right here. And we'd draw and we'd put four power plugs, right? And then we'd have a window and we take, and I took the pen and I went ba ba window. Here's the problem. Um, it's a big old fatty red permanent marker. You ever tried painting over a permanent marker? When it's wet, you know what it does when it's wet? It looks awesome. But you know what happens when it dries? You got all these pink lines all over your room that begin to fade through, begin to show through. And they knew that every single year, the life of someone else would be given, but all it would do is cover over. Hebrews 10, verse 4. He tells us this. This wasn't a surprise. This This is why the Jews were in such anticipation of a Messiah. There was such hope that a Messiah would come and he'd redeem them and he'd save them because they knew. The blood couldn't take away the sins of the people. It was just animals. All it could do was, was cover over. Uh, th- there was limits to the life. It, the, the life of a goat is not the life of an image bearer. Um, I, I have a a high school friend right now. And he is he's in and out of the hospital because he developed a blood disease. And in his, his, in his body, the thing that is supposed to give him life is dying. And it dies. And when that thing is dying, it begins to kill him. And the Jewish people would have understood that that was like our blood, and it was like our spirit, that there's this thing inside of us that's diseased. Our soul is diseased. It's broken, and it's dying. And, and you see, what, what, what they have never done is they haven't come to him and said, hey, you know what we'd like to do? We'd like to do a blood transfusion. We've got some pig's blood. How do you feel about that? Wouldn't help. Now, some of you, I have a friend who um, had a heart valve replaced and uh, he got a pig's heart valve put in. There's some value to that. It helps a little bit. But pig's blood wouldn't heal his diseased blood. So he has to go in and he has to get blood transfusions he has to get blood swapped out he has to get good healthy life-giving blood put into him so the writer of hebrews he's wrestling with us with this idea of, of and the jewish people would wrestle with what 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 could cleanse us because bulls and goats they can't they're just animals but what if what if this is the huge, scandalous proposition of the gospel? What if there was one whose blood was untainted with death? What if there was one whose blood was so perfect and clean and good and, and, and life-giving? What if that blood could come into our veins? This, this is the message of the gospel, Hebrews 10, verse 22, this, this is what he says. He says this, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. So next week, we're going to talk about this, about boldness and confidence coming before God and what that looks like. But look at this. He says, having our hearts sprinkled, this is the act that they would have done on the mercy seat, sprinkled, but I didn't say to cover over, to cleanse, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. I wonder how many of us struggle with our own brokenness, with our own rebellion, with the brokenness of our past, with the sin and the messed up things in our past, of a season, of a, of, of a moment, because, because all we've expected Jesus' blood to do is to cover. And it still sits under there, did you know that? <laughs> Like when you cover over a red permanent marker, it's still under there. And we walk through this life and every once in a while in the back of recesses of our mind, of our soul, the enemy brings back those moments, those decisions, those seasons, those rebellions, those brokenness, those hurts and he brings those back. And we begin to lack walking in a confidence and a boldness. The blood of Jesus was not intended to cover over, it was intended to cleanse. Isaiah writes about the prophecy of the Messiah coming, and he says this. He says, he says that, um, uh, that our, the, the, though our sins were a scarlet, he has made us. Isn't this a weird image? White as snow. That rich blood, life-giving blood of God himself, perfect and unadulterated by the brokenness of sin, cleanses us. I wonder. I wonder how many of us showed up today with guilt, with shame. The good news of the gospel, the message of the gospel is that Jesus' life-giving blood doesn't simply cover over for a season, it cleanses you perfectly. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if today, we're going to sing in a little bit, and then we're going to take communion. I wonder if before we do all that, um, you need to have like a little, short conversation. Like a little, little, short conversation with the, with the enemy of your soul. I wonder if you need to remind him and you need to remind yourself this morning that Jesus' blood isn't just enough so that people can't see the brokenness. Jesus' blood isn't just enough so that people can't see the, the thing that you carry with guilt and shame and anger and hurt and brokenness. Not that some people can't see it, but you need to remind him that you need to remind yourself The blood of Jesus, the life-giving blood of Jesus cleanses you of all of our unrighteousness, washes away all the brokenness and rebellion so that it is no more. That the life-giving blood of Jesus now runs through our veins and heals the diseased and broken parts of our soul. I wonder today, you need to remind yourself. There's, this, there's a spot Paul, he's writing, and um, he, he makes this list. He says, he says, what could separate us from the love of God? And he goes through this really big list, and one of the things that he says in it, he says, neither life nor death. Now, I think that probably in the moment, he's probably thinking of our physical death. But I think he's probably also thinking of our spiritual death. What could separate you? What could separate you from the life and goodness? What would be, <laughs> what would be so horrible, so rebellious, so sinful that the perfect life-giving blood of Jesus poured out for you would be insufficient? What what would, be, what would be so dark and so dead and so broken that the life-giving blood of God himself who breathed life into Adam and Eve, who breathes life into our soul, who brings healing and life, what would be insufficient for his blood to cleanse any of us, all of us, Why we come to rejoice and to worship? Because our faith is not in the sacrifice of animals. Our faith is not in the sacrifice of your obedience, of your goodness, of your impressiveness, of your ability to fix yourself. But that while I was dead, while I was an enemy of God, while there was death running through my veins, the blood of Jesus came to fill me and to cleanse me so that I would be as white as snow. You too this morning.